Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode zero of What the Fundraising. I could not be more excited to introduce you to my friends, John and Becky over at We Are For Good. Today is gonna be a little bit different. They are gonna be interviewing me so that you can get a sense for who I am as your host of What The Fundraising. And I'm just excited for you to get to know them as the amazing humans and interviewers that they are. They are the hosts of the We Are For Good podcast. They have an amazing community, incredible consulting services. You should absolutely know who they are and be subscribing to their podcast as well. And I'm excited to give you this look into my life, into my business, and into why I'm creating What The fundraising and what I hope to bring to you every week in these episodes. The experience of starting this podcast has been like nothing I've ever experienced before. It has moved me in so many ways and connected me to so many people that have opened my eyes and my heart. And I feel so grateful for this journey and so excited to share it with you. So let's start out this season with episode zero. Why? What's the big why? Why am I here? Why am I doing this? Who am I? (laughs) And why should you follow along and join me in this journey? So let's dive in. I'm so excited and thrilled and honored to be here with Becky and John from We Are For Good to kick off what the fundraising. This is episode double O. I love what you do so much. And being on your show was just one of the most fun things I've ever done. So I'm thrilled that you agreed to help me start off this way. Thank you. Let's be honest. If Mallory Erickson asked us to detail her car, we would drive across the country and do it. So anything that you need us to do, we are there. We love you and adore you. Do you realize we define our life as before we met Mallory and after? Like it was such a defining moment. Yeah, so we need an this acronym is, for that. The honor is huge for us. Uh, okay. Well, I'm going to hand it off to you guys. Thank you for saying that. But I'm going to hand it off to you guys. I'm going to let you. I'm going to let you run this thing. Well, we are so excited. It's episode zero. This is the tone setting episode about what is what the fundraising, what is the tone, what are we trying to achieve? And it's really just a time to get to know our incredible friend who is one of the most empathetic, kind, but bold disruptors in this sector. And so we want your audience to come to know, trust, and love you in the way that we do. And you have such an incredible incredible point of view that we believe is just going to launch the nonprofit sector into a new way of thinking, into a new way of operating, into a new way of connecting. And so I want to just say the first time we met you, before I get into the first question, do you remember this, John? I do. Mallory came onto our podcast. She had met with our producer beforehand. And our producer was like, I have a mic drop guest for you. I met this woman. She is in California. We're in Oklahoma. 
we're probably the first people you've ever met from Oklahoma <laughs> on this <laughs> podcast. And she said, she is going to knock your socks off. She came onto our podcast. She disrupted and changed everything about the way we thought about partnerships. And then we fell in love with your heart and your soul and the kind human you are. And yeah, you can never get rid of us. We're your BFFs for life. I couldn't agree more. It's just Mallory is the complete package of friend. And I'll say, when we get asked, who would you want to work with? And if we could go back into our former life, you're the type of coach and I say coach specifically, that you need as a development professional. So I was so excited you were launching a podcast because we all need that. We need the inner work to be able to go do the hard out, outer work of development. And so I'm so proud and happy for you and to be here. Let's do this. Let's okay, do so question number one is we want you to share your falling into nonprofit story. I don't think we've had a guest on our podcast in 140 episodes who has said I actively went into the nonprofit <laughs> sector. So lead us through like mm -hmm. sort of organizations and positions and how you got into our sector. Mm, yeah. So I also didn't think I would spend my life in the nonprofit sector, but my leaving college in my undergrad from the University of Michigan, I was really interested in education policy. So I thought I wanted to work at the Department of Education. I was going to go to Washington, but I was probably going to do that via law school or a master's in public policy. But I wanted to spend a few years sort of like on the ground in the public education system before I, you know, entered that next chapter of my life. So I found an organization called Citizen Schools that really fused together the nonprofit sort of on the ground inside the public schools. And they also had a policy arm of the organization. They also had the nonprofit arm, the advocacy arm of the organization. So I thought it was a great opportunity for me to really see the connection between those different places and spaces. I actually didn't work in their HQ office, which had been the whole point of me sort of going to their Boston location because because what I really fell in love with was being inside the school with the kids, partnering with teachers. And so I stayed there for a number of years as a teaching fellow. I was an AmeriCorps member, got my master's in education, and then stayed on as a campus director with them. I then went and did some consulting work for an organization called Peace First in New York City that also had sort of in, an in-school partnership model focused on social emotional learning. And then spent, after that, really started to get interested in the idea of cultural immersion and cultural exchange, both with young people from the U.S. going abroad, but also with students in other countries coming to the U.S. So for five years of my life, I worked for and helped grow an organization called Global Student Embassy, and we worked with youth in the U.S., Nicaragua, and Ecuador. I grew that organization from about 300,000 to 2 million. And I think, you know, before that point, I knew you know, this is where I'm going to be. Like, I love the nonprofit sector and I really believe in its power for transformative change. And I saw problems all over the place, right? Like I saw problems with fundraising and program development and scarcity mindset, but I just in my core and in my gut, which is still where I sit, just believe that this sector has the potential to be such a powerful force. And so I spent a lot of years really banging my head against the wall, trying to, to prove that belief to be true. 
and the thing I talk about a lot is that throughout all of this, I had big fundraising expectations. I absolutely hated fundraising. You know, I left Global Student Embassy, became the managing director of another organization, grew that organization from 1 million to 3.6 before I transitioned out. But again, and, and that it was really inside that organization that my framework around fundraising changed because I went through an executive coach certification program. I studied design thinking with IDEO. I worked with BJ Fogg on behavior change and habit design, none of which were related to my fundraising. Yeah. But the frameworks kind of like came together for me at the same moment. And I was like, wait a second, this doesn't have to be done the way we've been historically trained to do this. And why do I continue to study best practices from a system or a sector that hasn't actually filled, figured out the best practice for this thing yet. And it really opened my eyes to the learning that's outside of the nonprofit sector that can fundamentally change the way that we do things inside for good. And that's really the foundation of this podcast and the foundation of all of my work is just that we have been missing big lessons. We have been missing big opportunities because we are in our tunnel vision inside the sector. And I know I grew up here too, so I totally get it. That's how I operated for 13 years, but there is so much we can do to strengthen what we do individually and the sector as a whole when we pick our heads up out of that sand. Well, goodness, there's so many things that we oh, need to man. unpack. Holy smokes. <laughs> but I mean, before we move too far off, I mean, you're such a social justice warrior. It comes through how you've poured yourself into your work. And I'm just blown away at your experience. Honestly, every time I hear pieces of your story, I'm just like, no wonder Mallory is the way that she is. This pedigree and this kind of time of just learning and growing has really served you in the space that you're in today. Would you take us back though? Like, what is Mallory like on the playground growing up? Who is this girl? Where did she come from? What is your family dynamic like? And just kind of fill in a little bit of the gaps because we're going to come back to all the framework and good stuff, but I want to go there. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So who is Mallory on the playground? Well, I'm on the playground again right now with my two-year-old daughter, which is just so fun. So I'm the oldest of four women. I grew up in the East Bay in California and I'm also the, the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor. And I say that because that's such a significant part of my upbringing. And, you know, she really helped raise me with my mom and my mom is first generation American. My family's from Hungary on that side. And so just really grew up with a lot of conversation around injustice and inequity and the importance of standing up for what's right and what happens when we don't. And, you know, as the oldest of four, also think there was a piece of my identity that was really linked to like being the helper. So I really tried to like be a helper and not get in the way of, of what my siblings needed in a lot of ways. And so it's been an interesting kind of identity shift, I think, as women in general, and then me and my own kind of family really fell into being that helper by necessity. And it's been a an interesting journey for me to sort of step out and be like, okay, I want to be 
a person committed to service and community because that's a core value of mine, but not because that's the only thing that makes me worthy. Where I think that is, I really grew up with a real fear-based value around helping that like, I better be helpful or else, you know, I better be nice or else I better be kind or else. Cause that was Mallory. She was the nice one. She was the helpful one. And so I derived a lot of my like, okay, this is who I have to be. And it really was wasn't until my mid twenties that I was like, wait a second, I get to actually choose how I show up. And it doesn't mean these values are bad values. Of course they're not, but I really have switched the way that I approach them from a real conscious based perspective. And that's a big part of my coaching work with clients as well. Okay. Could Mallory Erickson be any more of a more loving, evolved, and self-aware human being. I mean, <laughs> there's not. so much to to tap into and to double click on on there. And one, I just want to tell you that you, the way you show up in business, the way you show up in your friendships, and I will put a pin in the fact that you are clearly my most favorite friend that I have met in the last year since we have launched this company. But the way that you show up is so grounded in that value system that you're talking about. And I just think of the legacy that you honor through your grandmother's life and the way that you have this arc for justice. And I mean, I, I will even share a personal story that Mallory, a couple months ago, and I don't even remember what the latest senseless shooting of an unarmed Black man was, but we were both so upset about it. And so anybody else would have just been upset and kind of sat in the angst of that, not Mallory. She gets on social. She makes a gift, you know, toward a movement that would not only eradicate this, but provide justice. And then she calls on other people to rise up and match her. And that is the kind of evolved human that is not just preaching, she's doing. And so I really want to like double click on this value system because I think that you have some wonderful, deeply entrenched values that you've created for your company. And I would love for you to just talk about how you bake them into what you do. Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, so, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion is obviously a strong value in my company and my personal work. One of my top values is curiosity. I think that curiosity is the solution to so much. It's the solution to judgment. It's the solution to black and white thinking. It's solution to low energy, to negative self-talk. It's like, where can we get curious. We get so certain, right? That we have this perfect way, this right way, the only way. And the world is not black and white. And so curiosity is just like a very top value for me. The other is integrity. You know, that's woven into like transparency and honesty. And another is courage. And I put courage on there, not because it's a natural value of mine, but because it's one I really intentionally work on to like be courageous. Like, gosh, I'm scared of that. I'm scared to do that. I'm scared to say that. I'm scared to put that out there. Like, okay, but you value courage. You value courage more than your fear. And so that's a really intentional one. You know, I talk a lot about authenticity and imperfection. I talk a lot about it for fundraisers. I train on it. I teach on it. It's a huge part of my program because I believe so deeply it is the key to sustainable fundraising success. And so I 
hold myself to a really high standard there too, in terms of letting myself be imperfect and visible and letting myself be authentic and visible and taking whatever backlash, you know, comes with that, which sometimes it does, but it's okay because I know that that's the road to success for me and my business to fundraisers and their fundraising. And then the other two values are accountability. I just hold myself really accountable to the things I commit to the people I commit to. Like when you're my person, like I'm all in, I just, I'm all in and that you're my client, you're my friend, you're my family member. Like you have me and I have your back. And that's just a really, that's a, that's a, sometimes a hard value to choose because I have to also choose myself and make sure that I'm not you know, holding myself to a level of accountability that doesn't allow space for me. So that one always takes some work, but it is just something I I really value. And then the last one I'll say is vulnerability that I just like, I just feel like that's the point of all of this. Like, I just don't want to be some robot on this planet. And I just want to feel things deeply. And sometimes that is really hard to do. And like, I can't watch scary movies because I just feel the pain of all the people in the movies. And my husband is like, oh my God, like, please. But, but I just, I feel everything because my heart is open and my eyes are open and, and it is a really hard place to live in, in that level of vulnerability, but I just don't want any other existence when it comes down to it. So that's another kind of core value of mine. Well, I think I've heard you talk a lot about how you feel really does inform of of a gut check almost. And to me, it has been disruptive how you teach people to listen to that. I wonder if you'd share a little bit of that because it's spoken to me when you've shared it on social and I go back and I'm like, I need to keep reading this. Would you kind of share that little story? Yes. So, you know, I... Gosh. Yeah. I can share the story that I, that I posted about recently. And then, you know, so years ago I became yoga teacher certified. And one of the things that was really interesting about that experience for me is that it was an immersive certification. So it was, I spent one month at a farm in Guatemala and, you know, the first few weeks I just kept asking, am I doing this right? And I kept looking, you know, I'd look under my arm or look between my legs, like, how's everyone else doing it? You know, and does this look right? And does this like, is this the right thing? And I I know I just kept asking that. And at some point, like two weeks in, maybe all of a sudden I just kind of shut up. And I was like, and I started asking myself, does this feel right? Like who cares? What does right even mean? My body's not her body. My body's not her body. It's never going to look that way when it's in that position. So what am, why am I so obsessed with this right? And it totally changed my experience with yoga. And the other day I was in a yoga class and I had that hit come back to me. I just like all of a sudden in the middle of the yoga class, I was covered in chills and I came out of my pose. I was like tearing up and I wrote down on paper, everything changed when I stopped asking, is this right? And started asking, how does this feel? And when I think about that shift, it has been true for everything in my life. Like that's what changed my fundraising. When I stopped asking, is this the right way to fundraise? Is this the right type of email to send? You can find so many different examples of things out there. How does it feel to you? And I feel like the key to all of this is figuring out, is tapping into those questions. How does this feel? I've had partnership opportunities, sponsorship opportunities for my company 
that are exciting, right? Financially, maybe reputationally. And I always come back to like, but how does this feel? Our bodies know so much. Our bodies and our bellies, like we hold information there that is all in that space of curiosity. And I feel like we fall into these conditioned tendencies of not listening to it because we're like, I don't have time or I'm just going to think about this critically and you know, put it on some chart, a pro con list or whatever. But it's like, gosh, there's wisdom that doesn't live there that you have. And so that is just such a routine for me. And now at this point, pretty subconscious, I think until I I had that moment a few weeks ago of just constantly checking in with like, how does this feel? And being really honest with myself when something doesn't feel good and sometimes making the really hard decision to not do something, even if all the data or all the things, you know, like sometimes my team members will be like, Mallory, come on, you're supposed to do blah, blah, blah. I'm like, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. And I know that if I act out of alignment with my feelings, you're not going to get the best me. You're not going to get my best energy. I'm going to dread doing the thing you're asking me to do. And my capacity is going to decrease as a result. So it's just such a driving question. And I think for fundraisers, a hugely miss, like a missing one. Mallory, where were you the last 20 years of my career? <laughs> I Someone can, to tell me that. Yeah, she has been kicking butt. And John, I don't know what say, word you John's say on your podcast. <laughs> I mean, I love this metaphor so much for your life, for your career. And I honestly hadn't heard that story because to me, it is the secret sauce of fundraising in this new brave new world that we're in right now. And and I have to compliment you about it too, because to me, it all comes back to those two core values of yours, which is authenticity and vulnerability. And you know that we are huge proponents of the art of fundraising. There are tried and true systems that you can follow step-by-step in any academic fundraising book. However, if you get to know someone on a human level, you understand their heart, you understand their motivations, you understand nuance about your relationship. It is going to require you to do what I talk about with my daughters all the time, which is listen to the little man inside your stomach. Your gut has something to tell you. And when we listen to that, extraordinary things begin to happen. And that is how great movements begin to escalate and grow and ripple. And people want to be a part of that. Why? Because it feels good, because it feels natural. And it leads to things like being named Forbes's leading disruptor in the nonprofit sector. Can we talk about this for a second? Like Mallory, this is a huge This deal. is so huge. So earlier this summer, Forbes came out with an article and it was actually entitled like female leaders that are disrupting and changing these five sectors. In that little category of fundraising in the entire world, Forbes selected our friend. One. Mallory Erickson. And I want to give everybody this quote very quickly because I thought it was really powerful. She says, 
As an executive coach in the non-for-profit world, Mallory Erickson helps nonprofits understand how to avoid overbaked donor stewardship by more strategically nurturing donor partnership. Her technique helps reduce burnout among nonprofit employees and adds the human touch back into what should be a human-focused industry. I have to tell you, when I read that article and I stopped and paused to wipe away the tears, I printed that sucker off, drove across town and put it on my mom's fridge because that's how (laughs) proud I was of you. Tell us about what this meant to you, because I know it was a huge shock, but I have to say, as your friend, as your colleague, as a champion of what you're putting into the world, those of us who read it were cheering Arsenio Hall style, pumping our fist, because we feel like the sector is finally identifying and seeing that we need to do a hard pivot into this organic human way of approaching fundraising. So talk about what this article meant. Oh, oh my God. Well, thank you for all of that. And, you know, it's interesting. It's like, gosh, I'm going to try not to cry too much. You know, I feel like a lot of times, or I don't know how many other people this happened to, but so much throughout my career, I heard things like, Mallory, but you're so capable. You could do anything. Don't you want to go work for Google or Facebook or Apple? I just like people would say that all the time, like I was playing small somehow inside the nonprofit sector. And one of the things I'm so deeply committed to is like, rewriting those stigmas, right? About how powerful the people inside this sector are and how amazing they are and how no one has any freaking idea what it takes to run a nonprofit on the shoestring budget they are running it on. So like, first of all, you know, that. And so it was interesting having this thing come out that all of a sudden got a lot of people's attention who probably had a lot of beliefs about my career, which I thought was really interesting. And I think for me, the way that I think about it is like, yeah, it's cool. And I'm glad that fundraising was on there, frankly. I'm glad that the nonprofit sector was on there. I mean, that was kind of the thing I was the most pumped about. I was like, our sector is being included finally in things like this. So that felt really good. And I think the other thing that made me excited about it is that I know that one of the things that holds people back from working with me or taking power partners is that it feels scary to fundamentally fundraise differently. Like I know that for a lot of people, my process around listening to themselves, slowing down in order to go faster, really building these intentional, strategic partnerships that are going to lead to sustainable, reliable revenue without that hustle is actually really uncomfortable for fundraisers at first because we have this value system inside the sector that the hustle is what makes us worthy of raising that money. Like if I didn't hustle for, I've had clients say that to me, like they've gotten a big gift from way less work than they anticipated. And they're like, I feel guilty about it. And so I know that that's one of the scary things about fundraising in a different way, or even investing in learning a different way to fundraise is like, is it going to work for me? Okay, this is new, but does it really work? And so the Forbes thing for me was more like, I hope this gives people the confidence that they don't have to keep doing things the way they've been doing them, that there is another way that they can get off the hamster hustle wheel. And so more than anything, it's just 
I hope it gives people hope that they aren't stuck in these old school fundraising methods that didn't work for me, that haven't worked for any of my clients, especially not, maybe they have temporarily worked in bringing money here or there, but they're not lasting and they're leading to burnout. They're making people leave their jobs, leave the sector, you know, the whole like broken ecosystem around it too. First Tee of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Well, I just want to say one more thing on this, because to me, this was such a moment in time. This was such a pivotal moment in our sector where I felt like, one, there were people finally kind of raising, quirking their eyebrows saying, oh, do we need to disrupt the sector? There are people who want to do that. And then two, it gave them permission to lean into it. And to explore that and to explore that why that you're talking about. And I just sat there thinking, our friend is the poster child of this movement. No pressure. But it <laughs> like brought me back to this moment, like this quote where it's like, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. And I'm sitting there thinking, John, we are all going to stand on Mallory's shoulders. She is paving this way. She is trailblazing this path that is going to connect humanity and empathy and the desires that we all have that I think, frankly, have been unearthed in COVID as we're trying to find purpose and meaning because we understand life is fragile and precious. And this is the time of which we pivot. And I could not be more overjoyed, more just enthusiastic that you could be the shepherd, you know, for us. And again, no pressure, but I am totally (laughs) in your flock and we are behind you. And I think the most gratifying part is the more we talk about it, the more we are finding little soldiers who want to come along and want to do things differently. So bravo. Yeah. And I just, I mean, thank you. I can't really handle what you just said, but, um, (laughs) but I think, you know, it's like, it's so interesting because it's like, I don't feel like a giant. I feel like we are all standing hand in hand on some shore, just taking one courageous step after the other. You know, that's why I keep courage as like one of my core values, because, so many of the things I've talked about or I've said felt so scary to say the first time I said them. The first time I ever said, I hate fundraising. I was so scared to admit that. Or the first time I ever said, I think my money beliefs 
are actually leading to the reason I'm not great at fundraising, like my own money beliefs. Like I think the way I spend money has a lot to do with why I'm not fundraising well. Or the first time I said, God, that felt so uncomfortable. I felt like I wasn't totally honest in that meeting. I mean, I didn't lie, but I felt like I wasn't totally honest and it just felt bad. And I did not feel like I had any place to say those things before. And I think that's the thing I hear the most from people is just like, wow, even, you know, in the quiet DMs or the little emails of just like, God, I never thought we were allowed to say that. And so I just think for me, it's also a lesson in that like disruption doesn't have to be some big, huge performance of something. It's just like, I'm just like sharing my truth that happens to be the truth, like so many other people's. And we've all just been really scared to talk about it. And I was really scared and am really scared sometimes too, but I just know so deeply that we just have to keep doing it. Well, the fact that you do all the things we've just described, and I'm glad that you're getting the attention and recognition for it, but we know you personally too, and there's just no ego involved. You know, there's no ego in the way you present yourself, but also just personally. And I just think that that is your secret sauce that, that keeps this authenticity and this vulnerability and why people love you and gravitate and want to learn from you because you're honest that you're learning too. And it's about the community being lifted. So I'm just so... I have the chills. I'm trying to like, like, like my chills to lay down. Something else before we move from fully from values that I think is just so true of you is that you have got such a heart to lift the voice of the oppressed, those that do not have a microphone. You provide that microphone to people in a lot of different ways. And so would you talk about that? I've seen you lift fellow women in this sector, the BIPOC community, all of the different, you know, things that we've faced over the last couple of years since we've found you. But we'd love for you to speak into that as well of, of why that's important to you and how you've done that. Hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's just a constant recognition of my own privilege. I think it's been really easy given, you know, I shared a little bit about my family's history. I think it was easy for me when I was younger to separate myself, maybe other myself from needing to take responsibility for the way that other groups of people have been marginalized and oppressed and discriminated against. And, you know, just in my own learning and work have really recognized that actually my responsibility is to step up in a much bigger way. I was not exposed to diverse voices as even consulting options when I was leading organizations. And there are just so many things that I feel like are so wrong about the ecosystem that surrounds the nonprofit sector and many things that are happening within the nonprofit sector, both for around fundraising and volunteerism and a number of different things. And I'm not going to solve them all, but I'm definitely going to give my audience and my platform or open it up for a higher level of inclusion that I typically see and, you know, that I believe needs to be a part of everything that we do. Thank you for showing up the way that you do. Thank you for you seemingly always, to John's point, put your ego aside and you lift the person next to you. That's what every human being on earth should strive to do. And I don't want to get off this topic about empowering women until I talk to you about what is it like being a wife and a mom mm-hmm. and a small business owner? I want to know the joys, the realities, the struggles, 
and the kind of lessons that you're hoping to teach sweet little two-year-old Emmy as you're modeling this very big life for her? I feel like motherhood has taught me so much about business and life and other relationships too, of just like surrender is like one of my main mantras, just like surrender. And I bring a lot of those same values curiosity. I get curious. Okay. You're having a massive tantrum in the middle of the kitchen. We're trying to go to daycare. I definitely have a call in 15 minutes, but let me just like take a beat and try to get curious about what is triggering this situation right now. And so really trying to like apply those values and same with vulnerability. You know, it's really interesting. My business and my daughter were born really close to each other. And so it's very interesting the way that those things have grown together. You know, Emmy, when she was first born, I have no idea why I did this, but she would start crying and she was like a few weeks old. And I would be like, tell me about it. Like, tell me about it, baby. Like what's going on? What's happening? And I just talk to her. I just give her space, you know, to cry. And I never, I didn't shove a pacifier in her mouth and I didn't shush her. And I'm not saying those things are bad, but for some reason, that wasn't what I felt called to do. What I felt called to do was ask her about her pain. Does something hurt? You know, I have no idea why. But it's interesting. What I found with her was that a lot of times, me just asking questions like that calmed her right down. And so it's been really interesting to like, let her be vulnerable, let her be scared, not draw a lot of meaning from it. You know, people are always joking about how many bumps and bruises the girl has, but it's like, I let her be brave and courageous and vulnerable because she'll find her own boundaries. She's so different than me. You know, she's a really unique combination of me and Ryan And Ryan just makes our world go round. I mean, there's no way I could have the business I have today without him, without him really, I mean, (laughs) I want to say sharing domestic responsibilities and he's probably listening to this like, girl, I do 75% of everything around this house. Um, (laughs) That domestic partnership for you. (laughs) But, you know, he has a big career and he works at a big company. He's in a big role. And he just like, he is so my partner in everything. And I couldn't do any of it, any of it without him. And raising Emmy with him is just a ball. And I love being a working mom. I mean, it is hard. It is so hard. But I feel like for me, being a working mom, I think provides me with a ton of balance. I have a hard day at work and I get to go home and be with my daughter. I have a hard Emmy morning and I get to go to work. And I love that balance when it's a hard day at work and a hard Emmy day. Yep. Those days, super rough, but they aren't, they aren't most of them. And, and I just learned so much in the different pieces of my life that I feel like nurture and support the others. And, and I think that comes from being, allowing myself to be like fully me in all of it. Uh, you have a beautiful family and we'd love watching from afar and hopefully we get to hang out with y'all in person too, because it's just a really special relationship that y'all have. So Indeed. thank you for sharing about that. Okay, I love all things frameworks and you have been kind of teasing this, but you just are such a strategic thinker, Mallory. And something that I remember striking me from the first time we met is just how as a teacher, you don't want to just teach something one-off that worked for you maybe at one of you know your offices over the years, but you've really zoomed out 
blended psychology with it, sociology, all this like passion that you have into what really works in a framework that everybody can adopt. And that's power partners is how can you build these amazing relationships that breed a ton of fundraising and better communications across the board. So would you kind of share a little bit about the founding of that and what it really means to the people that have been through your course? Yeah. So throughout 2020, my one-on-ones filled up really fast and I just couldn't meet the need that was coming in. And so I sort of took a step back and I said, okay, what am I doing with these one-on-ones? What are the questions I'm getting asked the most? And how can I build a course? You know, I, I, I'm a teacher by training. Like, how can I build a self-guided course that can really fuse like what I know from an education standpoint to what I know as an executive coach and all these sort of other frameworks I've been exposed to. And so I stopped my one-on-ones in October of 2020. And I basically spent three months building Power Partners. And then when I finally started producing power partners, what it was really around was like, okay, what are the things my brain has been trained to do? Combining all these different frameworks, what does my brain now naturally do when it combines my habit design with design thinking, with executive coaching? And so it required me to basically kind of like reverse engineer without someone needing to get certified as an executive coach or going through all the programs that I had gone through to bring me to that moment, I kind of had to reverse engineer how somebody could think the way that I was thinking when I was applying those multiple frameworks at one time. I don't even know if what I'm saying makes sense. Does it make sense? Sense, and I feel like a bobblehead because my head is nodding so often. I actually feel more <laughs> impressed than I already was. <laughs> right? <laughs> <That's possible. laughs> so, one of the big underlying frameworks is called Thunder Mapping. And inside that is this thing called Asset Mapping. And what this was created around was the constant question I got from people about what is our lowest hanging fruit. So if there was any question I got on a discovery call the most, by far it was that, Mallory, can you just tell us our lowest hanging fruit? And I'm like, no, I can't tell you that in five minutes after looking at the homepage of your website and I don't even understand your mission statement. Like there's no way. But I was like, but I need to figure out how to help you identify that. And so that's what funder mapping is all about. So I realized that part of what, when people were hiring me on retainer and hiring me one-on-one, part of what I was doing was this process of lenses. So through executive coaching, I really learned about this idea of lenses, which is that we all show up to every situation with the perceptions, beliefs, desires, goals that we hold, right? I'm wearing blue lenses. Becky's wearing green lenses. John, you're wearing red lenses. And unless I put on your glasses, I'm never going to be able to speak directly to what it is you're interested in, right? And so the thing I saw with nonprofits all the time is they were sending the same type of outreach email to a foundation as they were to a corporate partner, as they were to an individual. And I was like, oh man, they really do not understand how differently those entities are thinking from one another and from them. So I walk people through a process that's called Thunder Lenses. And we go type of, like we do um, foundations, 
corporate partners, inside corporate partners, I actually get way more granular because there's a big difference between marketing, corporate social responsibility, and a corporate foundation. So there's actually a different lens for each of those. Then we talk about individuals, which also there are a variety of lenses within individuals. But that's the first thing I have them do. I have them really deeply understand their current funders and funder prospects based on a number of different components. Then I have them do something called asset mapping. So have them write out all of the things of value inside their organization. And I'm going to tell you that this is more magical than I even realized when I was first coming up with it. So the idea is that nonprofits are holding so many things of value that go way beyond the programs and services that they're offering. Their audience, their email list size, the thought leaders on their board of directors, the skills of their staff members, right? The product placement inside the gift baskets that they send out to their clients, you know, whatever it is, right? There's so many assets, dozens, if not hundreds inside these different organizations. So I have them write all of that out. And then I have them match, organize those types of assets by the desires of the different types of funders. So we know, right, that like a foundation might not care about your list size, but a corporate partner will. A foundation is going to care about thought leaders on your board of directors. Actually, a corporate partner might care about that too, right? But I have them organize them based on the funder lenses. So funder lenses are first. And then we see where's the most heat. So like if your assets, if you look at your corporate assets and you have 56 of them and you look at your foundation assets and you have 13 of them, then my goal is for you to start your lowest hanging fruit is to build corporate sponsorship around either your current, like a full annual program or maybe a particular event, right? Because there's so much heat there. And it doesn't mean you're not going to have a foundation strategy. You're not going to have diversified funding, but you need to pick one bridge. I call it one bridge to start with, because the problem is, is that when we're trying to do everything at once, we are losing so many brain calories to context switching. And we are, we're building all these half built bridges that are not getting our organization to where we're trying to go. So the funder mapping process helps you identify your lowest hanging fruit. And then you move into what's called effective engagement, which helps you apply everything you learned into your outreach, right? Who's surprised that Mallory created the power partners that allows the funders to be seen and appreciated and valued? Like it's not lost on me that of course that is the course. And it's scary that that's disruptive, right? Yeah. That people feel seen in this process is disruptive, but it is, you know, especially those that us that have been in it. We have the same brain because I was literally thinking the way Mallory shows up in life is the way that she has built power partners to, to make things more efficient, to make them more human and to make someone feel seen. And I, I want to give power partners just a little slight love right now, because I love this concept of no more half-built bridges. But I feel like Power Partners is such a smart, emboldening, sharpening framework. The market is so hungry for this. And you showed up and created this framework that felt good. And I just want to give you some props through the lens of someone who's watching this go down. So I'm a part of the Power Partners Facebook group. I'm watching it go go on in Instagram. And I want to just say, one, this process works. And I don't even mean that that is like an infomercial. (laughs) 
this is a process that works. And we see it all the time on Facebook. People are posting all the time. And, and that is important because the bean counters want to know that we're making progress and we're getting money in the door. But the best part to me is watching the human response to how Power Partners has made people feel courageous. It's made them feel authentic. You have created a space where people come in and it's almost like when your kid comes in and they've successfully tied their own shoes or buckled themselves <laughs> in the car seat. It's like, I did it. And the joy you have for them, and we're all celebrating in community, you know, even if it's a very tiny nonprofit who never thought they could have had the courage to walk in and ask for a gift at that level. And the person that's funding it feels so great because it was a partnership. It wasn't an ask. So I could not love it more and I could not endorse it more. I want to get in there and I want you to leave your power. <laughs> breaking. Yeah. Okay. Well, wait, actually, can I say something about that too, or two really hey, quick things? Podcast. I think this piece is really critical. So inside Power Partners, right before they do effective engagement, like where they're sending out the emails, that's where the executive coaching comes in. So right before they're going to click send on these emails, there's a module about here's what you're going to hear in your head right before you click send. They might be mad at me for asking for more. My friends might hate me because I send this out every year at the end of the year. They might not give at all if I send this email. All those little gremlin voices, the self-critic, the chatter that are baked into fundraising so deeply however you get support around your fundraising, it has to include that. I honestly don't want to see one more fundraising program, course, training, anything that does not acknowledge the inner blocks that hold us back from being able to execute the strategy in front of us. Strategy is important. The science of fundraising, totally there are best practices there, but they cannot, they will not be effective if they are siloed from what is happening inside your brain and inside your body when you try to implement them. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> oh, don't, because I'm going back to my major gift officer days and that imposter narrative that you have created in your own head is such a psychological roadblock. And I think the word that I keep thinking of is your word in the situation, which you are giving people permission to surrender. And it's like, give it up, like embrace this courage, let it go, send that button, make that ask, let it go. And the success that's coming out of it is such a, a great boon, I think, to the sector. It's growing the nonprofit, it's growing the professional, it's giving such a incredible nucleus to the relationship between the funder and the nonprofit. It is like win, 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 win. I could not geek out more on Power Partners. So bravo to you. Thanks for listening to the little man inside your stomach. Okay, we're going to go, as we're starting to like kind of wind down this conversation, I want to get into some of these soft questions. And I just want to know who inspires you? Mm, gosh, everyone. I mean, I think for me, I am not inspired by the big things. I'm inspired by the little things. Like I'm inspired by the people who post inside Power Partners of moving someone from a $1,500 sponsorship to a $10,000 sponsorship because I know how scary that was to ask. I'm just inspired by people who take that one next courageous step at a time. I think that's what keeps me going and what keeps me inspired every day. 
And the thing that I love about who you are as an individual, about the way that you've set up your business is you're such a good listener. And I think this podcast is just going to put a flag in the ground for the sector that is going to buoy so many conversations that have been waiting to be told, stories mm. that are going to be shared. And so our last big question for you is, what are your dreams for your company? What is your dream for the podcast? My dream for the podcast is that it's a safe landing for people to feel seen and heard and that it provides a, like what you're saying, kind of a diversity of experiences and insights that we are complex people. And, you know, I think at the root of what I'm talking about in terms of fundraising, it's just that fundraising is a human act and humans are diverse and complex and multifaceted. And when we try to nurture the fundraiser in us just with one mode of education, we're missing all the other limbs that are involved. And so this podcast is diverse from episode to episode. There are podcasts where I'm hysterically laughing half the time and others where I cry three times and others where I just have to stop and like write notes down because what they're bringing up is just this breakthrough concept. And, you know, people have told me I have to systematize and make sure it's predictable. And I'm like, you know what, what's predictable is that you're going to get some mind-blowing value and that I want everyone to find a, a space and a place here that hits their humanness, you know, where they're ready to let me in. Um. And then in terms <laughs> for my business, I mean, Power Partners is the foundation. People keep asking me what's next, you know, but that will always be the core of what I do because I think it's it. I didn't create it to make money. I didn't create it to like have a product get out there and then do another product. Like this is what I believe can fundamentally change the sector. And so my goal is that every development person, every executive director can take power partners at some point in their career. That's my true deep goal. She's like the Dalai Lama of the non <laughs> the Dolly Parton. <laughs> or the Dolly Parton. I'd be so happy to be the either. <laughs> okay, we have had the best time going yeah. through understanding your heart, understanding your why. I didn't think it was possible, but I adore you even more. But for those of your listeners that are still hanging around, we wanted to do some quick hit questions as we're like rounding out this conversation because we're going to humanize our friend and we're going to let you know and kind of peek behind the curtain about the things that are important to her as simple as maybe what is your favorite road trip snack? These are power questions, <laughs> Mallory. Oh my gosh. Okay. Snyder's honey mustard, like broken pretzel things. That is my number one road trip snack. John yes. has one that's very similar to that. Okay. John. Really? Okay. Movie you've seen more than any other. Ooh, movie I have seen more than any other. Oh, 10 things I hate about you. I just will never match my eighth grade obsession with Heath Ledger. Just nothing can ever compare to that. And I don't even want to think about how many times I watched that movie. Yes. It's the <laughs> modernized version of Taming of the Shrew, Shakespeare. And it is so fantastic. And the music is great. So yeah. I, I, I feel you on that one. Okay. Favorite memory with Emmy or trip that you've taken with her? even if it's out into the woods. 
Oh God, it is so hard to pick. That feels so hard to pick. We just recently went and visited a friend and they had a bouncy house in their basement and she did it. Uh, Yeah, it's amazing. They're in New Hampshire and just watching her bounce around with the older kids was so cute. But then she got a little freaked out at the very end. And so for the rest of the trip, anything we would say, Emmy, do you want a blank? She would say no bouncy house. (laughs) (laughs) And we're still hearing about it. We're still hearing no bouncy house. And I just, I mean, every, I'm a, I just am so obsessed with her. It's hard to pick a favorite memory, but that one, I just love it. Bouncy houses can be traumatizing. Who would have thought? This is what you don't know when you're messing up your kids. Bouncy houses in basements. It sounds a little creepy. First concert you ever attended. The Rolling Stones. Oh my gosh. You're supposed to have a really embarrassing one like I do. (laughs) Millie Vanilla. Oh my God. That is really good. I was taken by an adult. I was taken by my youth group director when I was in seventh grade. So that's probably the only reason it's not embarrassing. (laughs) Okay. What's your Enneagram type? Gosh, I don't know. I need to stop taking the free ones because they all tell me something different. (laughs) (laughs) Two wing two or two wing three. three. She's either a helper or an achiever. Okay. So that is true. So I get two and three a lot, but once in a while I get one, which is really interesting. And I actually think because there's a lot of perfectionist tendencies in one and I call myself a recovering perfectionist. So I think it's interesting when we think about what are our condition tendencies versus who we are after we've done a lot of work on ourselves. And so I feel like I still am in there a little bit in one, but I'm like always really actively working on it. Okay, what's your favorite human quality? Can I say vulnerability again? You can. I think that's it. I think that's what makes us human, actually. <sighs> I just love you so much. Okay, thank you for saying that one. Well, this would be the last one. How would you like to be remembered? Mm. Oh, God, I don't care. (laughs) I mean, I think when I think about it, I just don't care. I hope I'm not even there in a story. I hope it just changes. I hope we just all get to feel better about the work that we're doing and the money that we're moving and the impact that we're making. And I hope we just actually solve these freaking problems. And I... I spend literally zero energy thinking about my legacy. I hope I am irrelevant. I hope I'm irrelevant. What I want is for you to not need me anymore. And I hope that that's what all of this becomes. Like you said, like some of the things I'm teaching, God, it's sad I have to be teaching them. And I just hope it doesn't matter anymore. And that that it just is the way we get to be. Okay. That was like the most beautiful, selfless, Though that could have been tied on this conversation. And one, you're failing at this goal because you are so relevant and so important and so needed right now. I love you for saying that. I have loved this conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, Mallory Erickson, kindness creator, justice seeker, dreamer, goodness celebrator, emboldener of the little guy. Thank you for seeing everybody. Thank you for creating this podcast. We are beyond humbled and honored that we got to have this conversation with you. Go do good.
Uh, thank you both so much. You know how much I love We Are For Good and both of you and Julie, and I'm so grateful for all the goodness that you're putting out there and for giving folks like me different platforms to, to get up on our soapboxes when we need to. So I really, yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Let's go change the world. You guys, I have to be honest that I am overwhelmed with how much we just covered, with how deep we went, and for the amazing compliments about my work. I am really here to learn right alongside you, to grow and change and question and get curious. I hope this episode gave you a sense of what I'm all about, what you're going to get from tuning into conversations between me and these amazing experts that I feel so lucky to interview, and that this is really a community for you to chime in. I want to know what you think. I want to know who you want to hear from. I want to know what you want to talk about. I am in this with you. And I know that the only way we're going to revolutionize this sector is for us to do it together. And that is what I am here for, to stand side by side with you, to have your back so that we can change the sector for good. So thank you for joining me for episode zero of What The Fundraising. To get all of the notes from today, you can go to my website, malloryerickson.com backslash podcast and make sure that you're subscribing and rating this podcast on your favorite platform. Whew. All right, you guys, are you ready to dive into season one? Let's go. Hey, you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.